You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Let's uh, open up our Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Father in heaven, I just want to echo Pastor Drew's prayer. We bring our hearts and our minds before you and ask that you'd speak to us in and through the power of your word. We love you. We're grateful for evenings like this. Come and speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 to begin with. We read here. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now again, one of the remarkable things we have about this letter, this document, because let's not forget, here we are, we're looking at an ancient document written from a man uh, about 66 AD, written to a younger associate of his. The older man, the man doing the writer, is the Apostle Paul, that great missionary and messenger of the early church. His younger associate is the guy who bears the name of this letter, Timothy. And Paul and Timothy had known each other for about 15 years at this point. Uh, About 15 years prior to the writing of this letter, Timothy joined up with Paul on his second missionary tour and had been with him much of the time. The times when Timothy wasn't with Paul, it was because Paul trusted him so much that he left him in a place that really needed leadership. So he was either Paul's trusted delegate or with the Apostle Paul for most all of that 15 years. And you can tell there's a very tight relationship between these men. That's really reflected in the first letter of Timothy, which of course you can read, 1 Timothy. But here in 2 Timothy, not only do we have that that note of a very trusted relationship, we've got something else. We've got this, this shadow that casts itself Over almost every verse of 2 Timothy, the idea that Paul knows he's going to die very soon. It seems as if Paul has made peace with this. He doesn't need to be fighting against it. He's not begging for his life. He's not groveling. He's not trusting in maybe some kind of wish that Jesus is going to rescue him from this. Although he recognizes it might happen. But yet he's, no, this seems to be my time. I'm going to prepare for it. Now, since Paul was leaving, it was all the more important. This, this heart, this passion that he had, it didn't begin with the knowledge that he was going to die, but it just amplified. But he looks at Timothy and notice what he says to him. I'll read it again to you in verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Timothy, I'm not going to be here any longer. I need to know that you're going to remain faithful to what I passed on to you. Because if you don't, the work of God will come to nothing. What is so deep in Paul's heart is this idea that preachers, pastors, God's leaders, they must remain faithful to the truth. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Now look, 
There is so much instruction that's helpful for pastors and leaders and ministers. There, there's books, there's websites, there's, there's uh, audio series, there's YouTube channels, all, all this stuff that's helpful instruction, helpful for pastors, no doubt. And, and we as pastors and preachers, we need to hear it. But I'll tell you one essential thing that you can never get away with. You better hold fast the pattern of sound words. Don't ever depart from that. It's as if Paul, and this is kind of a silly illustration, but just grant me a little bit of grace with this. It's as if he was uh, managing a store or a bank. Now, he doesn't own the store or the bank. God's the owner of this enterprise that we call the church. But Paul has been like a manager, and he knows he's going to leave his job. So the, the people that are going to come after him, he says, you better watch the store well while I'm gone. You, you better operate the bank faithfully in my absence. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. That's his exhortation to Timothy. And by the way, we, we grab a couple things to this. First of all, the whole idea of hold fast gives the idea that somebody's going to try to take it away from him. I mean, you got to hold fast on something if somebody wants to pull it away. So Timothy, you hold fast. Don't let anybody pull you away from th- this idea of biblical truth. Secondly, notice what he says. He talks about the pattern of sound words. I'm so intrigued by that phrase because I kind of have a theory. I can't prove it empirically. I can't go to a, a laboratory and prove this one to you, but it's just a sense I, I have in my soul that you know what? You can tell whether or not most of the time, I'm not going to say this 100% true, but most of the time you can tell if somebody is a biblically true preacher just by hearing them for a minute or two. Even if they're not speaking about anything that's controversial, or even if they haven't really spoken about some false doctrine or anything. But, but there's just something about the pattern of sound words. You can listen. To, they've got the pattern of sound words. They know. They seem to understand the scripture. And maybe even better yet, not only do they seem to understand the scriptures themselves, they seem to have a real meaningful relationship with the writer of scripture, God himself to us. So he says, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Verse 13, which you have heard from me. He received it from Paul. Hold fast onto it. Now, before we leave here this evening, we're going to see that it wasn't Timothy's job to only hold fast to it. In other words, the idea is you you take biblical truth, you take what Paul taught you, and you hold on to it, and you don't let anybody near it. You hold fast. No, that's not the idea. But you don't let go of it. You, You keep that. And it's a, it's a non-negotiable for you. But please notice this. He says, that good thing which was committed to you, verse 14, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Man, I love that idea. Keep it by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. Now, don't miss that. Because when we think of the working of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we tend to think of the working of the Holy Spirit only in the obviously supernatural. Someone is healed, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Some miraculous answer to prayer, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Some, some, you know, just unusual circumstance that is used to bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And I won't contest those things. These are beautiful works of the Holy Spirit. But can I just tell you, if a man stays biblically true to God's word through decades of ministry, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit. 
And I know sometimes we go, oh, how boring. Oh, couldn't it be more exciting? Listen, sometimes the Holy Spirit is very much at work in what appears to the outside world to be unbelievably boring. A man who holds fast to biblical truth, that can be an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if we are going to be faithful to God's word, it means that we have to be faithful to it even when it costs us something. You know, the pattern in the world today is for people to be faithful to something only as long as it serves their interest. Once it starts costing them something, well then forget that. Who's going to be faithful to that? But I love what David said in Psalm 15. I love this phrase. He says this, But he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I love that idea. He swears to his own hurt. That's a poetic way of saying he'll keep his promises even when it costs him something. He'll keep his oath even when it hurts him to do so. That's the kind of faithfulness. Faithfulness that shows itself when it costs to be faithful. So this is just such a wonderful exhortation here in the first uh, two verses we're going to look at tonight, verses 13 and 14. One other thing I wanted to say before we go on to verse 15. I don't want to leave these two verses without considering this. Notice this in verse 13. He says, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I think that gives us a beautifully rounded picture of how that person, how that pastor, how that preacher is to remain faithful to the world. He's to remain faithful to the word of God in faith and in love. I've met a few, thankfully not that many. They seem to have crossed the word love out of that verse. Oh, and they'll keep the word in faith. And man, they're happy to let you and anybody else know about it. But there just seems to be a, a, a marked loss of love in the midst of what they say. No, 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 listen. Faithfulness without love, I think that might be an approximate description of what the Pharisees were like. Oh, they considered themselves quite faithful, did they not? And by many or most measures, you would say they were really faithful. But where was the love? Where was the love for Jesus? Where was the love for others? It wasn't among the Pharisees of Jesus' day. So it's not enough just for us to hold on to the truth. We've got to hold on to it in faith and love. Now, another reason why it's important is because not everybody is faithful to this call. Look at this in verse 15. It says, this you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. I read verse 15 and I'm just a little blown away by that. First of all, if you ever had your name recorded in the Bible, you don't want it to be like this. The guys who turn their back on the Apostle Paul, Phygelus and Hermogenes. You don't, you don't want that kind of record in there. Secondly, I need to point out, when it says all those in Asia, don't think China, Japan, Korea. What we're talking about in the Roman Empire, they had a province that they called Asia Minor. We would call it today modern-day Turkey. 
That's where the city of Ephesus was. That's where Timothy managed this great work that God had, was doing. That's the area you're talking about. But I want you to notice something. Paul says, it's staggering words. Look at it again in verse 15. All those in Asia have turned away from me. Now, Paul's using a little bit of apostolic hyperbole there. Timothy was in Asia, and Timothy hadn't turned away from him. But, but nevertheless, this is true. A- allowing for just, you know, the figures of speech. Paul looks at, I'm abandoned by everybody. Timothy, you know how many people have abandoned me. And when you consider the magnitude of true revival work Paul saw take place in the Roman province of Asia Minor, how how in Ephesus and the regions beyond, not that many years before, God had done such an amazing work and God had really lifted up his work to an amazing level and yet at this point, they all turned their backs on the Apostle Paul. There's some sadness when we read that, isn't there? Here's Paul in his prison cell, waiting, waiting for his execution. And in all that place where he administers, they, they turn their back on him. If there were Christian radio back then, nobody wanted to interview the Apostle Paul at this point in his ministry. If there were Christian magazines back then, Paul would not have been on the cover. If there was Christian social media back in that day, Paul would have been unfriended by a lot of people. Paul would have had a hard time finding a publisher for the books that he wrote. You see, for many Christians of Paul's day, I think that they looked at the Apostle Paul and they said, there's a man who's too extreme, too committed. He's not flashy enough. He's not famous enough. And even though God had done a tremendous work through Paul in the Roman province of Asia, it says that they turned away from him. And notably among them, Phygelus and Hermogenes, these were not the only ones, but for some reason, these were notable. And no doubt, Paul tells Timothy this as a warning. Timothy, keep your eyes on these guys. And that's why he specifically pointed them out to Timothy. Now, Fortunately, praise the Lord, and this is how we know Paul's using a little bit of apostolic hyperbole there in verse 15, because starting at verse 16, he's going to tell you somebody who was faithful. Praise the Lord, not everybody was like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Look at now at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Well, praise the Lord, there was a contrast. Not not everybody had had forgotten about Paul. He still had a few friends on on his social media wall there. And one of them was this man named Onesiphorus. Now, this was a different sort of man than Phygelus and Hermogenes. He was faithful to Paul even in these difficult circumstances. Therefore, Paul prayed for mercy upon him and his whole household. And and notice this. Notice the things he says about him. First of all, verse 16, he says that he often refreshed me. Well, that's great. He, He went to refresh the apostle. Secondly, he says... 
he was not ashamed of my chain. Paul was a condemned criminal for what he had done. But, but Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of him. And then finally, verse 17, he sought me out very zealously and found me. You know, there were a lot of prisons in Rome. It was a big city. Onesiphorus had to go from place to place to find out the one that Paul was in. And he finally found him. And his conduct was so wonderful that Paul could say, look at it there in verse 18. You know very well, this man had a reputation for being somebody who had served the apostle Paul so well. And and I love that this man lived up to the meaning of his name. Onesiphorus, the name means help bringer. That's exactly what he did. He brought help and comfort to the apostle Paul. But now, turning his gaze back to Timothy, the first verse of 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read this. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you've got a big responsibility, and we've kind of had this discussion before, back when we were in 1 Timothy and back now studying through 2 Timothy. What kind of man was Timothy? And we often assume, and I know I've taught it many times, that Timothy, look, look, preachers like to use the phrase, timid Timothy, and that Timothy was something Well, coward might be too strong of a word, but he was just reserved. He was reticent. He he was a man maybe who lacked courage. I I want you to think that my perspective is kind of changing on that a little bit. I tend to look at Timothy now, not as a man who was weak in courage or a timid or or, or a man who wouldn't want to fill up his responsibilities, but rather a, a man of normal courage, just sort of average among us all, who had tremendous responsibilities. And that's kind of how I look at Timothy. And so he needed, he needed this exhortation. You be strong. Timothy, you're not some great natural, uh, courageous man and leader. You're a normal man of that. But you've got such a big job. You need to receive this strength. So therefore, you, therefore, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, one of the great things that we can receive from God is strength. I love that verse from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 and 31. Remember that? He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we need, isn't it? We need our strength renewed by God. We need to have what's made available to us in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul wrote to them and he said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We need God's strength. And and I have a theory, I mean, the scriptures don't exactly tell me this, but I think it's logical that God has deliberately designed the Christian life to be lived beyond our own abilities, If you're living it in your own abilities, you're probably not fulfilling everything God has for you. But there's an area that God wants you to step out in your Christian life, or he has wanted you to step out, or he will want you to step out, that you can really only do this as he strengthens you to do it. As they would say, that's not a problem, that's a feature. That's the way God has designed it, to keep us reliant upon him and his strength. That's why he says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, I love that phrase. Be strong in the grace. There is nothing that can make us so strong as the grace of God. Do you know what grace is? 
Grace is the undeserved approval of God. Do you want the approval of God? I do. I want God to approve of me. Grace is the undeserved approval of God. Well, wait a minute. Undeserved approval. Don't I want to earn my approval before God? Don't I want God to approve of me because he sees what a wonderful man I am? Well, I really don't want to operate with God on that basis, do I? Rather, God says, David, because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross, because he took the penalty and the shame of your sin, and because I see you in him, I will give you this approval unconditionally. This approval, this unmerited favor. Now, when I know that God receives me that freely in Jesus Christ, what strength that brings to my life. It makes me so strong. You know one thing it does? It makes me not afraid to fail. If I believe God tells me to do something, and I step out and do it, and I am totally, gloriously wrong. I mean, it just blows up in my face. You know what? He still loves me and unmerited, and it extends his unmerited approval to us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it like, David, what? You're off the team now. He doesn't do that. No, I can be strong in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Before I come up here to teach or preach, I, I don't have to think, all right, have I earned enough blessing from God so that I can come up here and believe that God would use me? No, Because you know what? I haven't earned enough blessing from God. The way of grace is not by earning and deserving. The way of grace is by believing and receiving. And when we simply say to God, I will believe and receive the grace that you have for me in Jesus Christ, then I can come up here and say, yes, God empowering me, me trusting in him, I believe God that even though I don't deserve it one bit, you love me and you love these people and you want to bring a blessing to them. That's the strength of grace in action. And if there's anything I know, Paul knew the strength of grace. Do you remember that little run-in that Paul had with the thorn in the flesh? He received this thorn in the flesh and he asked God, God would remove it. And Paul was such a mighty man of prayer. I believe that when he prayed, God would remove the thorn of the flesh. Paul was surprised when it wasn't gone. What? So he prayed again and it still wasn't gone. And he prayed a third time. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he prayed a third time and it still wasn't gone except God gave him an answer. And what was the answer? This is what he said to Paul. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Praise the Lord. So, Lord, you you have the strength of grace for me, the Apostle Paul would say. And since Paul knew that strength of grace in his own life, he could preach it to Timothy as well. Now look at verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. What a tremendous idea there. In other words, earlier, back in verses 13 and 14, we talked about Timothy's responsibility to keep the truth. All right, well, Timothy, you keep it, but at the same time, it's one of these wonderful paradoxes in the Christian life, at the same time, you give it away. 
you entrust what's been given to you, you find other faithful men to give it unto and to see God continue on his work through generations. I think it's wonderful. You have received this, Timothy. Now pass it on. Commit it to faithful men. This is one of the important aspects of calling for anybody in ministry. Anybody who's a pastor. Pastor, part of your job is passing on what God has poured onto you onto other people who can do what you do for others. Well, I'll never forget this wonderful incident. It was when I was on a trip to Australia. I was a pastor at a Calvary Chapel in Simi Valley at the time. And some wonderful madman asked me to be a part of a missions trip to Australia. His name was Ricky Ryan. And, and, and when you had the chance to do something like that with Ricky Ryan, you did it. Because it was, it was just going to be great. And so we did this wonderful outreach, and it was just great. And at the end of the outreach, uh, Ricky and I, and a couple of our kids who were traveling with us as well, we were going to go to a church uh, in Canberra, Australia, and we were going to preach there on Sunday morning, or Ricky was going to preach. And so, man, I was just along with the, for the ride and so happy to be there. I mean, it's just wonderful. So um, in a very Ricky-esque fashion, about 10 minutes before the service starts, you know, this is great. Ricky's going to preach. I'm going to listen to Ricky says, hey, let's do the sermon together. And I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, here's the text I want to preach on. It was from Ephesians chapter 4 about equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And he says, I'll preach through these verses, and then you take the second half and preach through those verses. And you know what? I mean, how can you say no? So I said, yes, I'll do it. Now, I must say, I have probably never listened to a sermon so intensely as I did to the sermon he preached before we were going to do this sort of tag team thing, and I was going to pick up and preach after him. So Ricky preached this thing, and I'll never forget this because I was listening so intensely, and he said something. I don't often listen to a man like Ricky Ryan preach and say, no, that's wrong. But he preached something, and I said, that's wrong. This is what he said. He said, the pastor should be teaching other people in the church to do everything that he does. The senior pastor should be teaching other people in the church, not necessarily everybody, but some other people in the church, how to do everything that he does. And my immediate reaction to that statement was, no. I thought, I thought, surely there are some things so holy and privileged that the senior pastor should not be teaching anybody else how to do them. You know, I said, just kind of that thought in my mind. And I said, he's got to be wrong on that. Let me think of what one of those things are. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I said, he's absolutely correct. (laughs) And it's just this simple principle. The things that have been passed on to you, pastor, preacher, leader, you pass them on to other people. And this is just part of our job description. As, in other words, a, a pastor leader, he has a ministry to the congregation, that's true, but he also has a ministry to present and future pastors and leaders to pour into them and to see God do a great work in them. And you pass it on to faithful men. That is the true apostolic succession. Now, there have been some in the history of Christianity that have held the idea of apostolic succession. And this is what apostolic succession goes like. Paul laid his hands on Timothy. 
Timothy laid his hands on somebody else. That person laid their hands on somebody else. That person laid their hands on somebody else. All the way down through the generations to the present day, if you could make that chain all the way back and find out who laid hands on, who laid hands on, who laid hands on, who laid hands on, those people today, those are the true representatives of God's work in this world based on the principle of apostolic succession. Let me tell you what I think of that idea. I think it is the laying of empty hands upon empty heads. Now, I believe in the idea of apostolic succession. I truly do. But it's a true apostolic succession of those who will remain faithful to the teaching of the apostles as given to us in the New Testament. This is your apostolic succession. And when you have people who are faithful to this teaching of the apostles, you have apostolic succession. And you have somebody who truly teaches what the apostles would teach. Also, I agree with, in general, a principle of apostolic succession. I just don't think it's done by ceremonies. I just don't think it's done by other such things. It's done by faithfulness to the revealed word of God. Without faithfulness to the teaching and example of the apostles, the idea of apostolic succession through rituals or ceremonies, it truly is nothing more than the laying of empty hands upon empty heads. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they must be those who will be able to teach others also. Now, when we hear Paul describe the work of the pastor, the preacher here in 2 Timothy. I, I don't know about you, and I, I know it's because I am a pastor, I am a preacher, but my heart gets a little stirred. It's like, what a noble thing to stand side by side with the Apostle Paul and to be right there with him and connected with him and we're on the same team and we're marching in lockstep. And, and that's all true. But, but Paul wants to give another angle to it here, starting in the next verse. And he's going to give us three illustrations of what it's like to serve the Lord faithfully. Ready for this? Three illustrations of what it's like to serve the Lord faithfully. The first one begins in verse 3. It's the illustration of the soldier. Verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Notice, first of all, in verse 3, this is not a suggestion. You, therefore, must. Timothy, I'm telling you what to do. You must, therefore, do something. What must you do? Verse 3, endure hardship as a good soldier. A soldier expects to endure hardship. At least, notice this, a good soldier does. I love that phrase in verse 3, and i got to say, I never really understood it, or, or, or it never really jumped out at me until studying through 2 Timothy this time. What is he, he doesn't just tell Timothy to be a soldier. He tells him to be a good soldier. It's not enough just to say, the Lord drafted me into his army. I'm serving. No, you're called to be a good soldier. And a good soldier expects some measure of hardship. A good soldier doesn't think that, that, that his service is all about you know, being on rest and recreation and having leave and all of that. No, a, a soldier has to be ready in the battle and he does it by this. Look at verse four. No one entang- engaged in warfare 
entangles himself with the affairs of this life. The soldier has to leave many things behind if he's going to be a good soldier. I've never been in the military. Um, I've got enormous respect for the men and women who serve our country and defend our country. God bless you if you have served uh, in this nation's military or in another nation's military. God bless you. I, I, I think that, that, that you're, you're doing the Lord's work if you do it honorably as unto him. But look, um, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, my, my first-hand knowledge of the military is pretty much restricted to movies, isn't it? And we've all seen the movies, haven't we? What happens to the new recruit when they go in? Well, the first thing you lose is your hair. Then you lose your clothes. Then you lose your privacy. Then you lose your food choices. Then you lose your comforts. Then you, I mean, you lose, you lose, you lose. And what? You give up those things because they would entangle you if you hung on to them. And this is what he's saying. Timothy, you, you can't have it all. If you're going to really be effective in the Lord's army, there's going to be some things that you have to give up. Now, let's face it. One of the problems in the Christian world is you'll have one brother over here that the Lord has spoken to him. Um, you need to give this up. It's entangling you for the service over here. And another brother here, God hasn't spoken to his heart about giving that up. And this brother here is judging the other one. God told me to give that up. It's entangling me. Well, shouldn't you give it up? Well, maybe, maybe not. Leave it to the Lord and that person. But what I'm saying, if there are things entangling you in your life lived for God, like a good soldier, you give them up. Because what's your heart? Look at it there in verse 4. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. If you don't endure hardship, if you don't put away the things that entangle you, you will never be pleasing to your commanding officer. And who is our commanding officer? I love that phrase from the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5, Jesus appeared to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. That's Joshua chapter 5 verse 14. Isn't that awesome? We have a commanding officer and it's Jesus Christ. Now one other thing before we go on to the next example. The first example is a soldier. You endure hardship and you avoid entanglements. That's the first example. It may very well be that Paul was chained to a soldier. Right when he wrote this. Wouldn't that be sort of cool? Paul says to the soldier, do you mind if I use you an example? Let me explain to you how I'm using an example to my friend Timothy. Okay, so that's the first example, a soldier. Second example, verse 5. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I find it fascinating that Paul often drew upon the world of athletics for illustrations of the Christian life. He mentioned track and field in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He mentioned boxing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he mentioned wrestling in Ephesians chapter 6. I don't know if you could say Paul was a sports fan, but he used illustrations from the world of sport to illustrate principles about the Christian life. And here's one of them from athletics in general. And notice what he says. He says, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There's a rule book and you can't ignore the rule book in your competition. You can't just say, look, all I got to do is win. 
No, you got to win, but according to the rules. You can't just do it any way you want. You know, if you want to use this illustration like in a football game. I heard somebody use this illustration just the other day, and I thought it was very good. In a football game, you have somebody there, and, uh, you know, the quarterback goes back to make a pass, and he finds the receiver, and he throws the ball to him, and it's 80 yards down the field. Touchdown! The game's won! Everybody goes crazy! Except for what? Well, there's a flag right down there on the field, isn't there? There's a flag, a yellow flag from the official. And what did the official say? The official said, well, you know, you, you took out a stick and you beat the man who was guarding you when you were running down the field. You can't do that. You're not competing according to the rules. Therefore, therefore, you don't win. Listen, this is an important principle in athletics, but also in Christian service. You must compete according to the rules. You are not crowned unless you do. It is possible for us to fall into the mistake that we think we can make up our own rules for our Christian life. There are some people who really believe, and I know because I've spoken with them, that they kind of have a special arrangement with God. And Lord, I know, I know what the Bible says, and I know that this is sin for just about everybody else, but, but the Lord told me this one's okay for me. Brother, sister, I don't say it with condemnation because I know the deceptive nature of sin. I don't kid myself about the deceptive nature of sin. Sin is a deceiver. But if you believe that way, you have been deceived by sin. You really have. We're all under the same rules. We are. And we must compete according to those rules. Okay, you have the soldier who must endure hardship and avoid entanglements. You have the athlete who must compete according to the rules. Let's take a look at the third one here in verse 6. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. I love this. Timothy had the attitude of the soldier, of the athlete, and in some ways I think he saved the best for last. The farmer. You know what's wonderful about being a farmer? There is nothing glamorous about being a farmer. You know, a, a, a famous soldier, yes, look at him, medals, medal of honor, all these medals, yes. You know, we have parades for soldiers. Athletes, are you kidding me? Athletes are superstars. They get the crown of glory. I have no idea who the nation's best farmer is. We, we just don't, I mean, we don't think that way, do we? But isn't it interesting? We rely more on the farmer, at least immediately, certainly than the athlete, and maybe even than the soldier, at least in immediate context. But, but it's just by nature, it's an unglamorous profession. If you want to be a farmer, you've got to work hard and accept that it's not going to be glamorous. I, I love how he phrased that there in verse 6. The hard-working farmer. It just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? It, it, it almost sounds offensive to say, the lazy farmer. What? The lazy farmer? The lazy farmer is out of business. No, the hard-working farmer. And Paul knew the value of hard work. He could say, comparing himself with other apostles, I love this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I labored more abundantly than they all. And I'm using all my powers of self-control to not go off on that verse. Because if I were to go off on that verse, 
I would just, I'm amazed at the fact that Paul would compare himself to the other apostles and say that he worked harder than they. That, that's kind of a bold thing to say. But, but yet, please know, even there in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. He even knew that his hard work was due to the work of God's grace in his life. Nevertheless, Paul knew that if he did not work as hard as he did, his ministry would not have been as effective. I like what Adam Clark said about this. Kind of a strong statement, but Adam Clark could be a strong guy. He said this, quote, Idle drones disgrace every department of the Christian church. They cannot teach because they will not learn. Idle drones? Well, yes, it's possible. Listen, some people expect something for nothing. But most people who are mature know you get out of things from the measure that you put into them. And if you put forth very little effort into your Christian walk, well, I mean, it's not a surprise that there's very little joy or reward or satisfaction in your life with God. So the first aspect of the farmer is hardworking. But look at the second one. Don't miss the second one. Must be the first to partake of the crops. Timothy, when you have spiritual food to give the congregation, you better eat of it first. Praise the Lord for that. Because when it doesn't happen like that, trouble ensues. Pastor, you've got to let the sermon speak to you. Even when you fall short of it. If I could only preach the things that I had absolutely mastered in the Christian life, it might be a pretty short sermon. But listen, I'll tell you where my heart is. I'll tell you where my intention is. I'll tell you what my direction is. It's to do the things that God would have me and have all of us to do. I need to eat of the food before I give it out to the people, as I give it out to the people. And look, sometimes, and I really believe this, sometimes I believe that that one of the greatest reasons God called me to do what I do as a preacher and a teacher and a pastor is God just knew I needed special help. It's like, David, you, you got to be in my remedial class. You need lots of attention. So I'm going to put you in an area where you can get that special attention. And I'm grateful for it because I, I know the work it does in my life. But, but when a pastor does not do this, when, when he preaches in a detached way that the word of God has not had an impact on his own life, when he has not had fellowship with God in his word as he prepares to teach and even as he teaches... Man, there's trouble. There's trouble. So look at those three areas. Matter of fact, you can take a look at verse seven. He says, consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Hey, Timothy, think about this. I've given you the example of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. The soldier has to endure hardship. The soldier has to get rid of entanglements. The athlete has to compete according to the uh, rules. And that farmer, he has to work hard and he has to eat of it before he puts it out as well. But listen, this is important for us, not only for those who would be preachers or teachers or pastors, but for every one of us in the Christian life. The soldier who stops fighting before the battle's over 
may never come back from that battle. The athlete who stops running before the race is over is never going to cross the finish line. The farmer who stops working until the harvest is complete will never see the fruit of his crops. Do you see what God's call is? To Timothy and to us. Resolve before God that with him helping you, you'll be faithful to the end. Remember when I said at the beginning that almost every verse of 2 Timothy seems to drip with the awareness of Paul's coming death. And don't you, don't you see what's going on in Paul's heart? It's like he's running a race, if we want to go back to that athlete picture. He's running a race and he can see his finish line. There was a time in my life, it's a long time ago, when, when I used to do some running and, you know, I'd run and I'd, you know, in training, I, I, I would do some running. And when I would train myself, I, I got to the mentality of, if I was going to run five miles or ten miles, all I really needed to run was four miles or nine miles. Because that last mile, there was nothing going to stop me. You know, last mile... Man, there's no way I'm going to give up that last mile. And and I would play these mind games with myself. Well, if I'm going to give up, it's going to be in mile seven or eight. But there's no way I'm going to give up at mile nine. No way, not mile nine. I'm almost there. Why would I give up then? Paul is close enough to the finish line. He can see it. It just fills his heart with so much joy and satisfaction. But you know what he's doing? He's shouting back to Timothy who still has a lot more to go. And he says, don't give up. You keep going. I'm closer to the finish line than you. So I'm just so excited about it. But you're, you're still in the midst of it. You're, you're still in a place where you don't even know how it's going to... No, you keep going, Timothy. You'll make it through to the end. But you need to have that attitude of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Now in verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. You know, it's as if here in verse 8, Paul breathes out, collects his thoughts. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, what else do I want to say to Timothy? My heart is so full. What else do I want to say? He says, Timothy, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget this all-essential fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ of the seed of David, the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy and promise. He's resurrected. He he rose from the dead. By the way, let's not forget, Jesus Christ was the first one resurrected. Now, were people raised from the dead before Jesus was resurrected? Yes, yes. But they rose to die again. I mean, I've heard that some people, when they do artistic depictions of Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead, I've heard that in some artistic depictions of Lazarus, he's always painted as very sad. Why would Lazarus be so sad? Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that wonderful? No, he had to die twice. Who wants to die twice? Now, Jesus, Jesus rose in a body never to die again. He was the first one truly resurrected, not merely resuscitated. And we will be resurrected after the same fashion. His was the first fruits. Ours is to come. 
And this was Paul's gospel, but it was a gospel that he had to pay a price for. Look at verse 9. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. I've got to be careful when I read and when I teach this book. Because it's so dramatic that I I don't want to over-dramatize it. But I wonder if I can. Here's Paul in prison, wondering if the next set of footsteps he sees walking towards his cell are going to be the ones that say, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, this way, it's time. And they're going to lead him out. I don't know if it would be done at a public square. I don't know if it's done in some judicial place. But they're going to put his head on some kind of block and they're going to take out a soldier's sword and they're just going to behead him. He knows that that's on the horizon. It fills almost every verse. But in the midst of all that, what does he say? He goes, listen, I know I'm in trouble here in prison as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. And when he says that, can't you hear, can't you hear those chains? Uh, you know, what do chains do? They clang a little bit. They're clanging a little bit. They're, they're, they're making that chain sound, whatever that is. And as they're, they're clanging a little bit, He says, with great resolve, maybe a little bit of a smile on his face. But the word of God is not chained. You can put me in prison, but you're not going to chain up the word of God. It's like, you put me in prison, you think you're going to stop God's work by putting me in prison? What, are you crazy? God's word is not chained. You cannot do it. The Bible has been attacked more than any other book throughout history. The Bible has been burned, banned, mocked, twisted, ignored. But the word of God stands forever. Remember the verse, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The the word of God is not chained. No government, no religious authorities, no skeptics, no scientists, no philosophers, no book burners have ever been able to stop the work of the word of God. But let me tell you something. If there is any sense in which the word of God might be bound, I would say the word of God may be bound when its supposed friends abandon it. When pulpits sound more like self-help books than those who proclaim God's word. When scripture is used sparingly, just like a little bit of spice in the sermon. I wonder if you're not finding a way to bind the word of God. No, the word of God cannot be chained, but we can be unfaithful to it. And that's why it says, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This remarkable man, Paul, you know he had the heart of evangelist, don't you? The man who did three great missionary tours. The man who loved to see people come to Christ. The man who planted churches all over the Roman Empire. This man, he was an evangelist. 
But it seems to me, and somebody, you could debate this with me if you want. Come up afterwards and we'll, we'll go, I don't know, I, I, I'm not going to fight on this point. I'm just giving you my kind of thought. I kind of think that even greater than an evangelist, Paul was a pastor. I mean, look at what he says in verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Listen, that's, that's worth the hardship. The, Paul worked the equation out, and he even discusses this in the Corinthian letters. He goes, if it's hard for me, but easier for the people of God because it's hard for me, Paul says, that's all right with me. It's okay. If my being afflicted can somehow bring blessing to the people of God, Paul says, all right, sign me up for that. It's not like I'm excited about it, but, but it's worth it to me. I'll endure all things for the sake of God's people. I love the people of God. I love to see them grow. I love to see transformation work themselves in life. I love to see them remain faithful. I love to see them flourish before God and man. And I'll endure that hardship. I'll endure this prison cell. And then verses 11, 12, and 13, and we'll end with this. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You wonder if this wasn't a poem, a song, something Paul's quoting. There's a rhythm to it that suggests this. Here's the faithful saying, Paul says. Now look, this faithful saying has four lines to it. Ready for the four lines? Here's the first line. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, this has a meaning for Paul, doesn't it? There's some guy sharpening up a sword to sever his head. But Paul knew that this has an application for every believer. And I mean that literally, every believer. Because there is a real and spiritual way that every believer has died with Jesus Christ. We are born into this world identified with Adam. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we are born again by God's Spirit... Our identification is no longer with Adam, that old man is dead. Now our identification is the new man. We are now identified with Jesus Christ. And if we are identified with Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, we died on the cross. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. Matter of fact, God's given a very wonderful picture of this spiritual work. Because the Bible says this happens spiritually for all those who are in Christ. Now, when I say spiritual, the thing that comes into our mind in the modern age is unreal. Spiritual. Roll our eyes. Yeah, spiritual. But listen, brothers and sisters, the spiritual world is real. 
I'm not talking about something that's a fantasy. I'm talking about something that's real and has happened in the spiritual world. Now, God knows we have a tough time with the spiritual sometimes, so you know what he said? He said, I will give you a very material illustration of this, and we call it baptism. When the person is baptized, they've died with Christ, they're buried with him, and then they rise to new life. Isn't that beautiful? He says, God, I'll give you a material enactment of what happened spiritually. So it's true in the martyr sense that Paul would soon know for himself But it's also true spiritually for every believer. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now look at the next phrase in verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Dear, discouraged brother or sister. You you are weary. You don't know if you can carry on. You don't know if you can endure. Let me tell you something. You are destined for a throne. God wants you to rule and reign with him. And this endurance marathon that we call the Christian life that you're living right now, that's to prepare you for that throne that God has for you. You're going to reign with him. Hang in there. Don't give up. It's worth it. You're going to reign with him. I'll say, you're going to reign with him. I don't even know what that means, but it's wonderful. Whatever it means, we're going to reign with him. And, and I think it's just enough beyond my comprehension. I don't know. I think it's good that I don't know what it means. I just know it's amazing. It's wonderful. But what hope God intends to give that to us right now in our present endurance. And look, you and I, and I don't, I don't mean to belittle our struggles. Because I'll tell you one thing about your problems. They're your problems. And, and just for that, they're real enough. We're not here to, to compare who, you know, who's the most miserable here this evening and on and on and on. So I, I'm not trying to do that, but I do just want to say this. Don't you think this had special meaning for the Apostle Paul there in prison? If, if it could help him endure through that, I said, it can help me endure through what I'm going through. Thank you, Jesus. That's the second line. The third line, it says, if we deny him, he shall also deny us. There's a figure of speech that you talk about guiding somebody with the carrot and the stick. It's like you would guide a donkey. Here's the carrot, donkey. Here's the reward. Don't you want to do it because of the reward? Okay, that's good. And, and if, if you need a little help, donkey, here's the stick. And I'll, I'll give you a little switch with the stick so you know to get going. I don't want to say that we're God's donkeys, though sometimes I feel like I've acted like it. We're his sheep. But God has a somewhat, not completely at all, but a somewhat similar approach where he says, there's a reward of reigning with him, but there's also a warning. Don't think that you can back away without a price to pay. And what's the price? 
If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus said it very plainly in Matthew chapter 10. He said, whosoever denies me before men, uh, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Man, that's heavy, isn't it? And so we need to just, whoa, this, this is very, very significant. Now, I could see that after the third line, believers being nervous. Oh, man, have I denied him? Will I deny him? I, I don't know if I can make it. That's why I'm so glad it closes with this last line that we're going to look at tonight. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. It never changes his faithfulness to us. You know, the faithlessness of man never will make God unfaithful. And he's there. He'll never turn his back on you. The Christian can stand faithful as God empowers them. And even if someone has been wavering... They still have time as the Spirit of God calls to them even now to turn back to the faithful God. Think of the prodigal son. Was the prodigal son faithless? Yeah, he went out and he did his thing, right? But let me tell you something. The father in the story of the prodigal son always remained faithful to the son. Always. The father was always, I'm waiting for you to come back. I'm watching for you to come back. I'll welcome you with open arms. I will never break faith with you, even if you're off doing your own thing. That's the kind of God we serve. And if somebody's left with the feeling, man, have I been faithless? Man, have I denied the Lord in any way? Then what you do, you just run to a father who has always been faithful to you. Always. And always will be. And you know what? You'll never find this to the God that you're into. You'll never find his arms closed. He goes, now you're coming to me? You'll never find that. You will find open arms that say, you come. I have been faithfully waiting for you. Thank you, Lord. Because if he were not faithful to us, we could never, ever in a thousand years be faithful to him. So let's do it. God's given us a Christian life to live, has he not? He's preparing us for a throne and he wants us right now to take that mentality of what? Of the soldier, of the athlete, and of the farmer. God helping us, we will. Father in heaven, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, I I pray that you'd help us, um, those of us here who are pastors and preachers and teachers, we need your help to hold fast the word of truth. We need your help to pass on to faithful men that which you've delivered to us. But Father, I pray this for every one of us as believers. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Grant us your grace. Make us strong in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And help us to walk in great faithfulness to you, the God who is always faithful to us. We pray this. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.
www.thepurpleshow.com.